Welcome everyone to another episode of Bumper Sticker Faith. This is episode 77. Man, man that's perfect. That's perfect. Double, double perfection. Yeah. yeah, double perfection. So uh, we're here. It's uh, it's Wednesday. Happy uh, Bump Day yes. to you. And uh, we have a special guest uh, with us this morning, Jim Fleming, who is someone, Lewis, that you know of. Yeah, finally, after months and months of having guests that I don't know and you know, we finally have a guest. Well, I guess we had another one, but one that I actually know and kind of like got set up. Man, a dear friend and brother, Jim Fleming, who I met, man, over 10 years ago. And you were so excited for this episode, Oh, man, I'm super geeked, man. This this is probably going to be my favorite one. (laughs) Just because I remember when I met Brother Jim years ago um, at a, a prison ministry conference at um, ECS Ministries, which is now Emmaus Worldwide, headquartered in Dubuque, Iowa. Um, Jim at the conference, his portion was the international. Mm-hmm. And I was just, I had been out of prison not too long. I'd never been out of the country before. And to just hear the stories of how God was impacting so many people's lives, mm-hmm. it just blew my mind. And I was like, instantly, I want to be like Jim's best friend and and even more, I want to be his travel buddy. <laughs> you know, I don't care how dangerous it is. I don't care if the food don't taste it. I don't care. I want to experience what God is doing. And so every two years and they have that conference, I'm that's the most excited thing I'm I'm mm. about is whenever wow. Jim does a presentation. And it did not disappoint. The last one was amazing. We had some actual international people there that share some stories that are kind of like you can't put it out in public mm-hmm. because it can like really cause some mm-hmm. some things in people's lives. And I was just like, wow, it's crazy. So, so, so Jim, welcome to Bumper Sticker Faith, brother. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Lewis and Sam. It's good to be with you and trust that we'll have a good conversation. Yeah, amen. So, so who is this guy? Who who why who, Yeah, why why are you so excited for him? Well, so there's Tell two, us about him. Well, there's two well, first of all. Jim has the what I call an honor and a privilege to serve the Lord mm-hmm. in such a way to go help start um, assemblies, which if you're not familiar with the term assembly, it would just be another way for saying church. Okay. You know, it's where saints gather together to worship God. And so Jim had the privilege or the task, I think, that may have, or mission may have been what he stated um, years ago was to go, right? Just like in Matthew 28 when Jesus said, go um, into the world and make disciples. That is the mission that Jim has been on. And, and when did that start, Jim? Well, it started about nine months before I was born uh, because my <laughs> folks were missionaries with the Zulu people in South Africa in the city of Durban, right on the Indian Ocean. So that's where I was born and grew up as a missionary kid, watching my dad uh, plant churches amongst the Zulu people. Um, but then when I came back to this country and went to college, uh, I didn't feel the Lord calling me back to Africa. Probably because I'd seen my dad basically nationalize the work there. Uh, hmm. At that point, I came back to the States. My parents did as well, uh, as Amaya's Bible College was uh, asking my dad to come and uh, get the uh, intercultural or the missions program going at the college. So I came back, studied uh, at university here, met my wife uh, here at Emmaus. And um, then in 1982, we were sent by God and through our local churches uh, to Peru as uh, missionaries ourselves. Uh, no, we were married in 82. We went to Peru in 84. Okay. And uh, we were there for eight years, learning all sorts of things, uh, including the language, culture, what our spiritual gifts really are. And uh, then the Lord transferred us from the coast of Peru, uh, the capital city of Lima, uh, which is a desert, 
up to the mm -hmm. highlands of mm -hmm. the Andean mountains to the city, capital city of Colombia. And so we were in Colombia for 16 years uh, from 1992 until 2008, uh, at which time I was in, uh, asked to come back here to the States and take on this role as the international coordinator, though I actually started it a few years before that uh, from Colombia. So I was, I had uh, what Sharon, uh, my wife called uh, half-life Emmaus, half-life uh, Colombia, half-life family. Uh, yeah, life was busy back then. Mm -hmm. Let's. I want to go back to South Africa. Tell us, you know, like, give us a couple things about like growing up in South Africa. Like when I think about that, I know South Africa isn't like Uganda or Ethiopia. It's more, I don't know, more American, I guess maybe than any other city in Africa, but still man, growing up in South Africa, what was that like? Yeah, it was a very unique time. In fact, it was part of my preparation to, uh, to do what I do now. Uh, I, when I was born in 1959, now you know how old I am, uh, it was still actually a colony, uh, was part of uh, the, the greater commonwealth of the UK. It got its independence in 1961, um, but during that time, the Afrikaners or the Dutch uh, descended people were in power and they, they created uh, that uh, terrible uh, law system called apartheid, which is the separation mm. of races. So there were four distinct uh, ethnic groups, and we had to live in our own neighborhoods. Mm. And my dad had to have a pass book to, uh, to be able to go out to the, uh, what they, they call them, the African locations where the, the, uh, the African native Zulus uh, uh, lived. And he uh, planted 12 churches there. We had to live in the central part of the town, and I had to go to a Caucasian school and uh, go to Caucasian church. That was law. Mm. So it was, it was interesting as foreigners, because we were Americans, there as missionaries uh, living under that system. Uh, but at the same time, it was one of the top 10 richest countries of the world at that time. Mm. Produced most of, the, most of the world's diamonds, 80% of the world's gold, mm. most of the world's uranium. Uh, it was highly organized. Uh, it was a paradise as far as control and, um, and uh, just a beautiful, a beautiful, beautiful place, which it still is uh, as far as geography goes. Um, but it's just unfortunately starting to unravel and uh, corruption mm. and uh, violence. It's ranked the number one violent country in the world that isn't in a, uh, an open war zone. Mm. It's, uh, so it's wow. that's a little sad. But there's still, I go back and mm. with the Emmaus work, and there's still lots of wonderful, wonderful things to do there and wonderful churches. Uh, it's a relatively high uh, percentage of evangelicals, be much higher than this country would mm. be. Mm. So you got a chance to travel with your father to some of these church planning like meetings or you got the experience that what was that experience like? Uh, uh, interesting. In the city, we didn't get to go out with him very often because that was more controlled. OK, but uh, their, their first five years, they uh, they lived on what is a typical classic mission station, you know, one of those uh, uh, fenced areas that has a, a, a clinic and missionary houses, and a school, and a mm. church, and uh, and um, those were necessary back in the 1800s, but my parents soon realized that the people were moving to the cities as industrialization was coming, and that's where the future of the work was. But I, uh, we would go to the country mission stations quite often, and especially on, as kids, we just loved going out into the country and uh, on our holidays. Uh, so there was a lot more participation with the, um, with the Zulu people when we were in the country, uh, whereas in the city, we were kind of isolated from them. Did you pick up but, any languages there while you were? No, uh, the, our province was an English. It was uh, predominantly British. 
And so I went to a British prep school, wore a blazer and a tie and, mm. uh, <laughs> and got paint and all that good stuff. That's why I'm such a good kid. Um, <laughs> and my sister is a linguist, so she was able to pick up Zulu just for spending her holidays out in the country. Mm. Um, but it's a very difficult language. It makes Greek look easy. Wow, really? Um, yeah. But just learn, living under that kind of political tension, the ethnic tension, seeing the, the good, bad, and the ugly – um, was was a, a learning experience, and um, you know it isn't all as bad as the movies um, painted out to be. Um, but of course, it's unjust and unfair when you subjugate uh, a population group and don't give them the vote. Mm, yeah, and so you mentioned how growing up in South Africa really was the Lord preparing you for what would to come, would be, would be, would be. What would come for your life in the mm -hmm. future? So you mentioned Peru, and then you mentioned Colombia. So tell us a little bit about your adventures or your ministry work in those two countries. Yeah, very, both very interesting countries, even though they're on the same continent. They're very different countries. Uh, Peru, uh, that's where Cusco and Machu Picchu and the Inca Empire was uh, centered. And so they call themselves the belly button of uh, South America. Mm -hmm. uh, they, In fact, they believe that that's where creation started by the great sun god and hmm. and uh, and and so understanding peru you understand a little bit about all of south america oh okay and so it, was, it, it was good that's once again god sent us there we got good training there is still probably about 60 percent indigenous blood uh in the peruvian people whereas in colombia there's probably only about 10 or 20 percent indigenous blood uh, uh spain arrived in colombia first and they acted a little bit more like we Americans. Uh, they kind of wiped out the, the population and just took over themselves. Mm. Whereas by the time they got down to Peru, um, they were just stealing the gold. Uh, they, they, they weren't trying to, uh, to dominate the population uh, so much. So Peru was much more Latin thinking uh, or actually more indigenous thinking. Um, just even the aspect of the people is different. Uh, whereas once we got up to Colombia, they're much more European thinking, mm. uh, different different mentality in the church and in, in the economy, um, and uh, so both experiences were were, were vital. Okay. And uh, in Peru, the uh, the work that we were involved in was rather slow and difficult. When we got to Colombia, uh, we arrived in 1992 to uh, help a church planting ministry there that had planted seven churches in the in the previous 10 years. And by the time we left in 2008, 16 years later, there were 25 churches. Wow. So the things were really moving moving in those years. So what, so tell us, tell us what that looks like. Two things. One, how the churches started and then two, like to like grow the church and then move yeah. on to the next one. Like, what does that look like? Yeah, that's, uh, there's no, Formula. There's no pet answer. I know you can go into the missions uh, into the missions department of uh, bookstores or and find uh, uh, many books on church planting methods and formulas. Um, the church planting method and formula is Jesus Christ. Mm, uh, it's my church. That's and so I important. Will build my church, <laughs> and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And the ministry of uh, the Holy Spirit, who saves individuals that then become a corporate church. So how that's done in Zambia, as I go to Zambia, or in uh, India, when I go to India, and how it was, uh, we saw the Lord and the Holy Spirit work in uh, Colombia, were 
can be fairly distinct and different. The way the Colombian movement is called Aposento Alto, which means the upper room, and that was a nickname uh, because my senior missionary, Brian and Sharon Killens, uh, commended from Arlington Heights in, in Chicago area, um, had gone down there in 1980 and uh, seen the first church started about 1982, 81. Um, they uh, went to work with a Scottish brethren missionary who... Uh, Mary, whose wife died, and he had married a woman of the charismatic leaning, and so he ended up being charismatic. And um, we love our charismatic believers, and uh, we um, brothers, and we work with them all over the world, especially with Emmaus. Uh, but sometimes you don't plant churches together. There's just <laughs> reasons we we each go to our own local church because of our own convictions. So uh, they had a very happy. Uh, division and uh, Colin Crawford was the man's name. He said, "Brian, you take your home Bible study and you do your thing, and uh, we'll be friends all our lives," which they were. Um, and um, so Colin started a movement called Philadelphia, and Brian started a Bible study on his fifth floor apartment, which was the top floor. And so they started just calling it the Aposento Alto, the uh, the upper room, yeah. just kind of as a joke. Well, as the church uh, just started developing and uh, then other churches came out of it they just kept that name uh and that that, that works fine um how did it start basically brian said about the third week into the bible study once they had uh, kind of gone their own way he said well there's 10 of us here or 12 um that means we're a church so they started breaking bread and taking offerings and uh and uh, doing the acts 242 um uh four columns and and just the tenacity of saying, we are going to be a church, we're going to live like a church, we're going to reach out like a church, and then a great deal of um, emphasis on evangelism. Wow. So they evangelized, and then when they would get up to, uh, and they got up to about 60 people, then they spun about half the group off and said, let's start another church, because we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Mm -hmm. Everybody should be doing something in the church, not just watching. Mm -hmm. And so that, uh, that's been the philosophy over the years is let's have smaller churches uh, of, you know, now they would grow them maybe to a, to 100 or so forth and then spin off 40, uh, but churches of 60 to 100. And, um, and that's just kind of how uh, they started too. And then one of the starts started another one. And mm -hmm. so, so it's yeah. kind of networked out across. Yeah. And the city has grown from 6 million to 10 million people over those years too. Wow. So. It's one big, massive traffic jam. Now, uh, now, wow. like, just because I know before our, our listeners or viewers, Emmaus Bible College is just that, a Bible college, but sometime um, a correspondence school was started that was called ECS Ministries Emmaus Correspondence School, which is now Emmaus Worldwide, just because that name Worldwide really reflects the footprint of the correspondence courses, how much have those courses played a part in what you personally have done with your work uh, with Emmaus? Okay. That's a good, very good question. So uh, here, here is some of those kind of courses we're talking about. Uh, uh, prison courses. Lewis would know this one. Well, yep. um, you know, the woman who pleases God to, uh, here, here we have Spanish and, uh, uh, here we have Ukrainian, which has just been printed. The Polish mm -hmm. people are taking the courses into the uh, from Poland into the Ukrainian uh, war zones and uh, at great bravery. Um, I've been kind of involved with Emmaus all my life. I remember my dad uh, correcting Emmaus courses in Zulu when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And then when we were in Peru, the um, ministry office I shared with uh, uh, 
I didn't personally do the Emmaus work, but it, they, that was Emmaus. I did uh, children's uh, uh, Sunday school materials, uh, but of course they work together. So there's a, a lot of use of the courses in home Bible studies and small groups and one-on-one -on -one discipling, very effective. Um, but then when we went up to Columbia and I was asked to start the uh, Bible school system up there, evening and Saturday Bible school so that we could train leaders, um, then we used Emmaus courses as textbooks. And then after about five years, I realized we have about 150 in our Bible school. But what about the other thousand people that are in our church movement? What about the other, you know, uh, thousands and thousands in, in the other denominations? And so uh, we started the Emmaus correspondence, which basically means take it home and study it, learn mm -hmm. how to get into the Word of God for yourself. And most people want to. Um, I mean, our pastors have been telling us all every Sunday, you know, have a quiet time, study the Word of God. It's not a matter of desire. It's a matter of what do I do? Mm-hmm. Do I start in Ezekiel or do I start in Hebrews? And that can be a little daunting if you, <laughs> yep. if you happen to land there. Amen. Uh, it's a little easier to read a psalm. Um, but if, if you have if you have a course that just kind of uh, you know helps you, here's one on the summary of the Bible. Just gives you a little introduction to each book of the Bible. Oh, okay, I can handle that. Now I know you know in in ten minutes more or less what Hosea is all about. And, mm -hmm. uh, why are there three different Gospels? And it just walks, so these courses walk you through the Bible and then different topics of the Bible. So we got that school going kind of as a pilot project in, in Bogota, and uh, there are about 800 students mm. uh, in that, and that just continues year after year. And uh, we have four other offices in the, in the country. And so we were working with that. This is even before I was asked to become the international coordinator uh, here from the home office. Mm. So what? So I'm sure different countries it look looks different ways. So tell us uh -huh. about a country or a continent like India, and then tell okay. us about like an Asian place like a Japan or a China. Yeah. Okay. I'll back up a bit to actually finish your last question. Okay. Uh, yeah. The college started as a kind of formal in-house uh, resident school in, in 1941 in, in Canada, moved to Chicago, and then in 84, eventually migrated out here to a little town called Dubuque, Iowa, right on the Mississippi River. Um, and uh, just because it was cheaper and got a, a big facility out here. But almost immediately, the founders realized, just like I did in, in Bogota, that they only had 150 students in residence. What about the rest? And it was during the war. What about the servicemen overseas? So they started just getting the teachers to write up their notes and put them on, uh, and they was just put photo, well, in those days it was Roneoing, uh, photocopying them and sending them out uh, uh, just as lessons. And then they caught the idea, well, let's put them into, uh, put them into booklet form. And then about 1950, uh, they caught the vision, well, if it's good for English speakers, what about others mm -hmm. and that was when the missionary movement was starting after the war the biggest missionary movement that ever uh, happened in the history of the church and there was very little material back in those days you know bible study fellowship um you know, prison fellowship navigators none of those existed mm -hmm. uh, so emmaus was kind of a, a niche in those days and they were written at a level where they could be translated fairly easily and they were accessible to uh to people of uh, you know, new believers in, in these uh, growing mission fields all over the world. So during the 50s and 60s and 70s, missionaries took them um, all over the world. But the philosophy was one of autonomy. So each country basically is autonomous. 
So we produce and uh, and keep adding materials here. We keep uh, copyrights. We uh, we assist them and encourage them and train them. But each country does it their way. So they translate, they set up their leadership, they distribute, and they fund it uh, to a large degree as well. Though there, of course, there is a lot of uh, first world funding going to the third world, uh, which is a necessary thing. Uh, so if you go to a place like India, there we're working in 14 different languages, because India is really about 50 countries in one. They <laughs> technically have 486 recognized national languages. Wow. And in a country that's uh, only half the size of ours geographically. Imagine Man. having can you imagine having a thousand languages in our country? <laughs> That'd be crazy. <laughs> well, of course, they also have uh, uh, four times the population we have. So mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, that, 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 that makes a, a small people group there is only, you know, 50 million people. <laughs> uh, so, but because there are so many languages, everybody knows two or three languages. So we can work in 14 languages and hit the majority of the population, at least in their second language. Like Hindi is the national language, mm -hmm. basically. Um and so there, uh, the work is basically a correspondence work because there's distances, there's people just, you know, uh, Malayalis up here and down here and down here, and you have Telugu's here and Telugu's here, and you've got Marathi's here and Marathi's. So it, from Bangalore in the center, they send out. So mm. it's, it's mostly a uh, decentralized correspondence uh, uh, system. And, of, uh, and to make life easier, um, for them, uh, they're basically going towards uh, using the uh, the mobile app, and mm, so yeah, that that just makes life a lot easier. Yeah, everybody can just have it right in there uh, on their telephone, their tablet, or mm. their computer, and they all interconnect. So you can start a course on one device and carry on in your next device if you have more than one. So India would be decentralized. If you go to a pl uh, place like Colombia, it's quite centralized so we have four offices in four major cities and so the uh, the people would come to the office to get their course and they could then talk to the teachers there uh, at the office and get mentored um in, in other places they use radio to disseminate the courses so it's follow-up material from radio programs mm, okay um, you could uh, offer a course after this one yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and uh, tell them where the website is and here in America, you can study uh, through digital courses. You can study on the app, or you can buy paper courses uh, uh, and, and get mentored as, as you go. Is, um, it, is there a uh, difference, have you noticed, between the, I guess, the popularity or effectiveness of a course and geography? Uh, are, yes. are certain courses more effective in certain places? And what are some of those? That's a very, very good question. Um, 65% uh, of about, well, we use about 1.4 million courses a year. Uh, of wow. the, the fund statistic is almost 80% of those come back. Exams mm -hmm. corrected, uh, answers, wow. uh, questions answered. So they're, they're, they're getting personal contact with somebody, 80%. Wow. Uh, whereas whether it's secular or Christian booksellers, they'll mm -hmm. both tell you uh, the complete reading of any book sold is about 5%. Mm -hmm. Wow. So th that means anybody donating a little bit of money to their local Emmaus work, whether it be in Pakistan or the USA, 
uh, that's pretty good bang for your mm-hmm. buck. Um, and somebody's actually getting affected by it. And, and it's uh, not just 80% books received or read, but it's filled out, written, and returned. Everything. That's right, Nick. Yeah. They've gone that's... through a little exam, which probably means they've read the course mm-hmm. twice to find, because they can go back and look for the, mm-hmm. the, the answer. We want them to do that. Um, and uh, and then there's there's what do you say questions at the end and uh, so a little bit of uh, writing out mm-hmm. and then they're free to ask questions so yeah there's that there's that give and take on it um, so that that's really neat uh, and but Africa uses sixty five percent of all our courses hmm. and so uh, the there is a spiritual nature to the Africans that doesn't mean evangelistic uh, spirit, spiritual can be animistic too but that the African people. Yeah definitely believe in uh in god and in the in the spiritual nature of man and yeah. they're looking for looking for answers yeah so they talk about the majority global south evangelization of the world in this in this decade and that's very or probably even this whole generation uh, so there's gonna be a lot of southern people in heaven mm-hmm. and, uh, but are, and, so and, that's... In fact, the further north you go even though the climate gets colder and people become more organized and more economically uh, efficient and wealthy. You get up into your, you know, your Germany's, your Scandinavia. You get up into North, the northern USA and into Canada, uh, etc. Your, your evangelical population drops worldwide. Hmm. Wow, it's very interesting. Hmm. So, are there specific hmm. courses that seem to be more liked in different countries than others? Well, it's probably more to do with what we put into our curriculum. So oh, like in oh prison, okay. In the prison work, as you know it, we start with the four or five prison uh, mm-hmm. courses. So Born to Win is very, yeah. that's the number one course we would print in this country because mm-hmm. the majority of courses used in this country are in prisons. Mm-hmm. Uh, worldwide, the number one course would be What the Bible Teaches, which okay. is a, a simple systematic theology, if you like big words, or it's uh, it goes through the 12 major doctrines of the Bible and, and just a very simple, very clear way. Uh, so that's very highly used. Uh, we have two levels of the Gospel of John. One that's a, a simple, about two, three pages per lesson. Uh, another one that takes two books to get through the mm-hmm. book of John. Yep. Those are very popular. Um, and then more and more in this generation, uh, there, whether it's good or bad, that's uh, de- debatable, but there's kind of a shift away from the interest in studying the Bible books towards the topics. Hmm. Managing anger, God's way, the believer's battle with temptation, that kind of uh, material. Even the more apologetic courses like Discovering Bible Study or How to Defend Your Faith, those, those mm-hmm. courses are, be, are tend to be more popular in the, especially in the developed world. Mm-hmm. Do you have a course but, that's your favorite? I probably like my dad's course. My dad's written about fourteen of them. Uh, he was uh, he was quite a character, quite a. He's still alive. He's going to be 96 in a couple of weeks. Wow. Um, uh, securely saved and sure of it is mm. one of my favorite courses. Wow. It's a, courses, it's a, a mix of doctrinal and practical. Um, and basically, it gives you the gospel in the clearest format we have in all of our 105 courses. Uh, and gives you the assurance of salvation, gives you the desire to serve God because... Uh, you don't have to save yourself. He saves you, and he uses you. And um, it's just it's a it's a powerful little course. Yeah, you know the thing that amazed me about that course was one that there's a whole course that exists just on that topic on assurance. Yeah, yeah. I mean it blew yeah. me away. Like it just 
comes at every angle imaginable to like give you that assurance. I remember studying that in Cook County Jail a few years ago. And it was just, I was like, wow, that was my first time actually doing it. So it was great. It was great. And, it, it, and it's a powerfully needed course because you know well over half of evangelical Christians don't believe in it. Mm, so they live, in the, they live in the fear of losing mm. their salvation. Mm, wow. And uh, that, that's a, not a nice way to have to live. Uh, no, uh, it's not living in fear, right? Mm-hmm. Living that, in that's fear. That's right. Who, so I, who saves me, God or me? That's right. That's right. Amen. mentioned your dad. Who is your dad? Well, my dad, uh, his name is Ken Fleming, and uh, uh, his um, father was just an insurance, well, just, he was an insurance salesman, but his grandfather was one of the founders of the Brethren Movement. He, as mm-hmm. some people might, uh, if you're a theologian, know J.N. Darby, uh, mm-hmm. who was one of the theologians used to kind of revive dispensationalism. Um, back in the early 1800s. So Inglis Fleming was was an evangelist, uh, worked a lot with children, was in Darby's uh, South Park uh, uh, Church in London, uh, then emigrated to this country. And uh, then his two grandsons, Peter Fleming, went to Ecuador in um, January of 1951, the same month my mom and dad went to South Africa. In fact, the last time they saw each other, they were doing uh, deputizing uh, meetings in in Los Angeles. And uh, my folks were in Africa for 25 years before then coming and teaching missions for 35 years here at Emmaus. Uh, And of course, Pete only lived uh, five years down there in Ecuador, or six years before he and Jamalia and the others were martyred in 1957. 56, got to get my my brother was born in 57. He, Mm -hmm. He got the name Pete after his uncle Pete. Wow. So that's a, I mean, that's a great segue that I wanted to get into with our kind of second portion is, man, I mean, if you can take us back to that time, you know, maybe, maybe for some of our listeners, they have no idea about this incident that happened in Ecuador. So maybe tell us a little bit about that. And then tell us about how you and your family, like how you responded to something like that. Now, Lewis, I just said 1956. How old do you think I am? <laughs> you're right, you're right. <laughs> I was born in 59. 59. Man, you yeah. just missed <laughs> I just missed it by three years. Yeah, so, but uh, in all seriousness, I, of course, I grew up with the story. Mm-hmm. Um, how, at what age did I start really putting the pieces together? But all uh, that did have an impact on my life because of my dad, being a very uh, vibrant missionary and watching his life and then knowing what the God had done through uh, the death of those five men. Mm-hmm. The bottom line, and I'll go back and give you a little history if you want some on the whole incident. The bottom line is that the martyrdom of those five men did more for missions than their lives would have done if they were uh, had lived their whole lives and wow. were just uh, passing on about now. Mm-hmm. Um 
the, proof of that is yeah. even back in 1979, I went to an Urbana conference. Don't know if you've heard of the yeah. Urbana oh, yeah. conferences that happen every two years. Uh, in those days in Urbana, Illinois, there were 17,000 people at the one I went to. Um, the, at that conference, uh, InterVarsity, which keeps a lot of statistics, estimated, and this was uh, 1979 was what? That was uh, the, only 23 years after it had happened, that there were 10,000 missionaries on the foreign field in part because of that story. Wow. Now, I don't know what the statistic is uh, now that we are you know, mm. uh, 60 years out, almost. Um, no, more than 60, almost 70 years out. Um, and the amazing thing is the story is still alive. Mm. Uh, partly because Jim Elliott, uh, who is the one that made the famous uh, statement, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to lose what he, uh, to lose what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, uh, paraphrase of Jesus' statement, of course. Um, his wife, uh, Elizabeth Elliot, was a brilliant person. And so she was an author. Uh, she was on radio uh, most of her life. And so the Lord used her to keep this incident uh, uh, alive for uh, the movement of missions. She wrote, uh, and if you haven't read them, you can still buy mm -hmm. them, books like uh, Through Gates of Splendor or Shadow of the Almighty. Yeah. And she Great just, book. Yeah, it does Google Elizabeth Elliot, and uh, there are uh, great books she uh, she wrote. Um, so the Lord used her, and of course the fact that she, about a year later, went back in after the five men had been killed to live amongst the Wadani people, as they're known. And at that time, they called them Alcas, but that's a negative word. It means savage in the uh, in the Quechua language. Mm -hmm. So. Um, uh, it's you don't call them Alcas. <laughs> uh, uh, there's uh, that's just not a positive term. Um, and so she lived amongst them. And then Nate's uh, the pilot, Nate Saint's uh, aunt, uh, Rachel, went back in and lived amongst the people until she died. She's buried out there. Um, so what happened to the story? Well, uh, there were five missionaries uh, living in the eastern jungles of Ecuador in the early fifties. Uh, reaching out to Shuars and Quechuas and Quichuas and, uh, uh, and many other people groups there are in the Amazon basin there. Uh, but they, everybody knew about this group, which was then known as the Aucas. Uh, the only contact that man had ever had with them would be uh, oil explorers that would go in looking for oil in that area, and they usually didn't come out alive. Mm. Um, they had actually even been a cannibalistic tribe uh, back uh, at, 50, 60 years before that time, the men, these men just got had a passion to reach these people. And so they actually had to do it somewhat clandestinely because uh, uh, the brethren aren't really a mission group, so nobody uh, they're a little more free to do what they want. The Gospel Missionary Union, which Roger Udarian was part of, and Missionary Aviation Fellowship, which uh, Nate Saint was flying for, uh, would not have given that kind of permission to reach out with the danger that it was. So, uh, but they felt God uh, wanted them to find these people. So they would make over, it was months and months they spent looking for the people with flights. They finally found little villages of them, uh, which actually weren't that far away, about a 20 minute flight from the furthest mission station that, uh, in the jungle called Arafuno. And uh, so they would started flying over the village and they started, um, well, Nate developed a system where 
first one that had ever been developed. He could uh, send down a bucket on a rope, and he flew his plane at, at the, a perfect circumference, and the bucket stood still. And so they could drop, they'd drop presents down, and then the, they would take them. Of course, these people had never seen metal before. Mm. Uh, they got their first machetes and or uh, bushwhacking knives and pots, uh, and then they started sending presents back. And then they built a platform so they could, uh, in their minds, get closer to this flying bird. Um, mm. And they, uh, there was one woman from their tribe that had been kidnapped by the Shuar, the next tribe over. And she had escaped from the Shuar and had gotten out of the jungle to the, uh, there's two towns at the end of the, the road. The, uh, at that time, uh, the furthest east bound road was Uno and Shell Mera, where the missionary base was, Shell, because it was developed by the Shell Oil Company. Um, and so she was being cared for by the missionaries, and they were using uh, her language skills to try and learn a little bit of Warani. And so then they started calling phrases back and forth. My Uncle Pete was extremely intelligent, uh, and he was the kind of the linguist of the group. He was a little reticent to go in when they did, because he knew they didn't know enough to really communicate with the people. Mm. But Jim really wanted to go in. They feared that their their little plans would get found out, and they wouldn't be able to go in. They'd be uh, they'd be uh, denied by the mission groups. So that's why in January of 1956 uh, they went in. Oh, I forget the exact days. I, I think they went in like on a Tuesday and set up the camp, built a tree house, uh, and then the uh, three of them uh, slept there in the tree house. And every night Pete and Nate would go back to Arahuno. Uh, and spend the night there just for safety's sake. Um, and then on the uh, Friday, three Alcas came out of the jungle and crossed the river and spent the whole day with them. And they 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 gave them names, George and uh, Dayuma. Uh, I mean, um, Delilah. <laughs> they called her Delilah because, of course, they had no clothes. Um, even until in the 1980s when I started going in there, they still, the ones who, way back would just still wore a string and you were well why do you bother with a string and they look at you astonished well i would be naked if i didn't have my mm. string on mm. <laughs> and i mean it was literally just a string mm. with some beads on it mm. <laughs> uh not covering anything um so they even took george up for a flight in that plane that day can you imagine wow the, that, that from stepping out of the jungle where only recently had even felt metal to now flying in a, uh, and of course stories have come out over the years. Now, um, and they had a very peaceful day. Uh, they seemed to be happy. They had a little model airplane. They tried to show them, you know, that this plane, you know, was just mechanical and would uh, could fly and they used their phrases on them and they fed them, and anyway, the three disappeared uh, in, as dust came on. Nobody came back Sunday, uh, Saturday, but on Sunday they could see there was a whole group of them coming, and that's when they radioed into into uh, Arahuno uh, and Shelmera and said, uh, "This may be the day the Lord is bringing this group to us." Mm. Little mm. did they little did they know that they had spent the last forty eight hours uh, telling their stories and. Uh, drinking their chicha fermented and the young people were getting more and more riled up to the point where the young people decided they had to go on the warpath that these people were really bad um 
one of the main reasons that have come out over the years is that they had, oh, they kept asking for Delilah, for a Dayuma, rather. Dayuma was the woman on the outside. Um, and they couldn't understand because they didn't know her Warani name. Uh, so they didn't know what they were asking. So, But at some point, they pulled a picture of Dayuma out of their pocket. Now, they'd never seen a picture before, and it took them quite a while to catch mm. the capacity mm. to see something, uh, see 3D on 2D. Uh, that's mm. something the brain has to learn to do. When they caught it, they, in their minds, they just pulled Dayuma out from inside. We used to be cannibals. These people are cannibals. So mm. cannibals are coming back in. We got to get rid of these cannibals. So the, mm. the, the, youthful, the youthful rage and... Uh, and how do we know these stories? Well, maybe you have on your phone there, uh, um, Lewis, mm. that picture of my dad. Yeah. Uh, when he went back in 50 years later in the year 2006 to celebrate what God had done amongst the people, uh, because there's quite a few Christians. There's a couple of churches in there now. Uh, if you can see that, there's a picture of my dad with, a, with an Indian uh, man next to him. His name is Kimo. And Kimo is the one who killed my dad's brother. How does Kimo remember that? Because uh, Pete was the only one that had glasses. And of course, glasses was a very odd con thing mm. to them. The other uh, yeah, fun fact that, uh, very moving fact that Kimo relates is that they had speared the other four. Pete was the last one. And Kimo was uh, one, I guess, uh, was coming in a little bit behind the, the others. And uh, so he was still crossing the river. And as Kimo was coming towards him, Pete had seen what had happened to the other four. Instead of running to the treehouse where they did have a gun, Pete kept coming towards Kimo using the Warani phrases he had. We come in peace. We come in God's name. We love you. We don't want to harm you. Those are those very simple phrases, mm. all that they knew. He was able to enunciate them clearly enough that Kimo heard them and remembered them. Mm. Mm. And just the fact Kimo says that this man would keep coming towards me instead of running away from me, because it's a fear culture, uh, and that he would say these things to me and die in peace, uh, spoke to him. And, uh, mm. and so uh, later he came to the Lord and is, uh, uh, amazingly for an Indian, that's very old, he's still alive. Um, uh, he became a leader in the, in the little church that uh, is in that village, and there's two or three other little uh, Wadani churches through uh, throughout the uh, the area. But uh, so, praise God for there were 400 Aukas or Wadanis in the tribe at that point. There's now about 1,200 because modern medicine and so forth. In fact, too many for the jungle to support. So they ha after they finish school, they have to leave. Um, there is still a downriver tribe. Half of the tribe is downriver, and they still are unreached. They won't allow anybody near. They put two uh, spears in the path. If you cross that path, your life is uh, is at your risk. And uh, wow, you mean right now? The, right, right now, now today, to this day. So they know where they are, but even the, their own Warani cousins or whatever um, can't can't go in there. They would kill them too. Wow. So, and there are a number of tribes in the Amazon jungle like that. Some of them haven't been found yet. They know they where they they know have evidence of them, but they have never contacted. Them. Really? So, yeah, so there's I, people I, there's people that exist on this planet that are still living like their their ancestors have lived hundreds and thousands of years ago. Yep, 
they keep the fires going because they have no matches, they have no metal, they have no, yeah, it's they, they, still, there are still, I mean, we're talking wow. about a fraction of 1% of the world's population. Yeah, now, but yeah. There are these people, yes. Wow. Man, well, thanks for sharing that. I mean, hopefully, you know, for any of our listeners, if you're not familiar with the story, you definitely can Google it. You know, you can Google um, Jim Elliott. That's the, you know, most popular person. And as I was just, you know, sitting back Googling some things and reading some stuff about it, you know, I thought about you. I thought about your father. I thought about your uncle. And I was like, you know what? It kind of like rubbed me the wrong way a little bit because it's like there was more than just one person. You know what I mean? There were other people who gave their lives you know, for the sake of the gospel as well. And it was like, well, I happen to know a guy who's the nephew of one of those guys. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, I'd love to have Jim come on here and, you know, share some of that story just to like put a name, put it, you know, with yeah. that incident and to just share a little bit of that story. And so, I mean, that's, that's, that's a very famous story. If you haven't um, heard about it or want to know more, you can Google that. And uh, like you said, Elizabeth Elliot, if you just Google her name, You'll find all that information and video. You'll find all kind of stuff about that. But, Jim, you've been – I know um, a few years ago, either the last prison conference or the time before that, I remember – and I know you may be limited on what you can say, but you can say something because I know you said something at the conference. There are some, there are some other places that exist in other parts of the world that um, people are risking their lives for the sake of the gospel. Could you Can you share anything about that? Sure. Um, and, and naming places, uh, as long as you don't name names and show photographs, is, gotcha. is, is not too dangerous. Uh, yes, there there are very difficult places. There are places like the Maldive Islands where it's you. Do, there just are no workers. Uh, one man went in there about uh, six years ago and thought, you know, I'm protected by the uh, by the angels of God and nothing's going to happen to me. <laughs> I think he lasted three days. Wow. Uh, so it, it, it'll happen. So you have to be as wise as, uh, as doves, uh, as wise as serpents, and yeah. as careful as doves in certain areas. There are parts uh, of India that are very dangerous, especially really? in the north. Especially in the north, um, we had one of our brother missionaries burned it with his two sons in their car about twenty years ago, and that was twenty years ago. It's worse now than it was then. Hmm. Um, in fact, just last year, the the new radical Hindu government told both Muslims and Christians, we, you're quite free to leave the country. We prefer if you would. They want hmm. to turn it into a Hindu state. And uh, they, they're, they're, quite, they're quite violent about it. Um, uh, so the Christians are definitely much more persecuted than they were even five years ago. Uh, church buildings are being burned. Uh, people are being harassed. Um, I don't have any facts about martyrdoms, but you do hear that there are pastors being be, being killed. Yeah. Of course, the years we lived in both Peru and Colombia, uh, we lived during the years of the uh, the terrorist movements in those countries. And uh, while we were in Peru for those eight years, half a million people moved into the city of Lima every year, fleeing the persecution in the uh, uh, in the uh, jungles and mountains from the terrorist groups uh, in Colombia. There's tens of thousands of evangelicals that were murdered by the FARC uh, mm. during their their 30 years of reign um, because they just uh, the FARC would move in. You either give your children to our cause, you grow the drugs for our cause, or you either flee or we murder you. And 
uh, sometimes they don't have time to flee. Um, pastors were especially targeted uh, during those times. So were you in Colombia during the time of Pablo Escobar? Yeah, the last two years of his life. I remember the day he died. And uh, that, those were those were some violent days, but they got much more violent after the U.S. Uh, dis, uh, disintegrated the uh, cartels, because the cartels kind of between Medellin, Cali, Bogota, uh, they kind of shot at each other, keep each other in, in check. Uh, once the cartels were gone, then the the, um, the terrorists who would protect the cartels, and the cartels would give, have the money to give them arms, so there was a, 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 there was a little um, uh, marriage going on there. Then the t- terrorists just took over everything, and mm. that's when Colombia just dissolved. It was 60% of the landmass. You couldn't, you couldn't go on to. It was just controlled by them. And uh, so in the cities, we weren't really under any danger. I mean, any more than there is in any Latin city. Um, but yeah, they're, 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 even in the city, there are these motorcades of black suburbans would come through with motorcycles or sirens going and then, you know, three or four suburbans and 10 motorcycles. And you, you would just scatter out of the way because uh, it probably wasn't the president. It was probably a drug lord. Wow. <laughs> Hmm. You just didn't get in their way. <laughs> That's crazy. So what would you say yeah. to a listener who uh, is considering mission work? Where would they begin and to answer that call or to, yeah. to discern that call? Yeah, that's a, a wonderful question. Um, yeah, start with your own life. Be in prayer and Bible study. Very, uh, very active in your local church. Don't expect to do on the mission field what you don't do in your mm. local in your local assembly mm. in your local mm-hmm. church. Uh, find out your gift. How do you do that? Practice them all and see how God uses you. Okay. Uh, mm. In the end, the gift is the Holy Spirit. Mm. And he, Amen. He just, decides to, he just decides to use your mouth to teach, or your hands to uh, to serve, or your wallet to give. But mm-hmm. it's He's the gift. Uh, so how is he going to use you? And when you figure that one out, oh, life becomes very liberated. Mm-hmm. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's a joy. Um, then uh, read missionary biographies. That's a huge thing to mm-hmm. do. And okay. there's all sorts of them out there from Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret mm-hmm. all the way, you know, the Elizabeth Elliot books. Uh, just, yeah, 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 there's no end of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, then if you're really serious, you work with your church towards that uh, that goal. Um, maybe go f- find a, a missions program in a place like Emmaus Bible College that mm-hmm. has an intercultural studies program or my uh, youngest daughter just finished a master's in intercultural studies down at Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Lots of good programs like that that will really prepare you and, and help you. Um, travel. You know, use, use, uh, use your spirit. You know, cancel your cable network and mm-hmm. uh, just one year of cable will give you enough to get an overseas ticket. Easy. Mm-hmm. And uh, go, go to Europe. Go to uh, go to the 1040 window. Uh, if you've got it's a, uh, some kind of profession, the real big movement in missions for uh, this next generation is going to places like North Africa, uh, the Middle East, the Stan countries, the ex-Soviet uh, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, etc., Go in there as uh, you know, as a, a reporter, a doctor, a lawyer. Uh, um, I don't know if you can get in as a truck driver, but uh, start a start a coffee plantation, uh, and um, you bring a team with you. Go in as a, uh, as three or four couples, and 
and, and that those are the areas that kind of the world that really need to focus on missions in this generation. Uh, is there a need in Wheaton, Illinois? Yes. Is there a need in Durban, South Africa? Yes. There's a need everywhere. Every local church has needs. But where is the gospel not really being preached? Mm. And, uh, uh, that's where Paul went. And uh, I think that's kind of a biblical mandate. Uh, and many, many, many mission groups, Christian NGOs, uh, are really have a sense of the Spirit of God to move in that direction. So it's it's not that difficult to get there in the sense that there are opportunities. It does take preparation. And, uh, yeah, you might have to leave some of the comforts of home. But not necessarily. Uh, life is basically the same all over the world. Um, is, is there a lesson from missions that you've learned or observed that you think would be a great lesson for a local church in the United States to, uh, to embrace, I guess. Yeah. I try not to tell people how wonderful the missionary life is because if everybody goes, there'll be nobody to support the rest of us. (laughs) (laughs) My question is why wouldn't people want to be a missionary? You know, you, you get to spend your whole day thinking about God and his work and his people and those you'd like to reach. Uh, you get to go to uh, exciting places. Uh, you, you get to spend time in Bible study. People support you to, uh, to, uh, to do something that has, we, I mean, we don't do it for the reward, but though the Bible does tell us to, you know, uh, store up mm-hmm. our rewards for heaven. Um, and I praise God for everybody that has a, quote, secular job that then supports the church and supports the foreign missions. Praise God for them. And I know many of them work just as hard as missionaries after mm-hmm. their 60 hours of work downtown Chicago. Uh, they're incredibly involved in the local churches. Magnificent examples of uh, Christians like that. Um, but uh, the fact that they were willing to support people to go to uh, yeah, Turkey or to um you know, uh, Kyrgyzstan and, and, and start a little coffee company and, uh, and, and, and evangelize in clandestine ways, or, you know, if the Lord leads you to South Africa, yes, there's still millions of people that need the Lord in South Africa. Um, so one mission's, um, uh, exhortation, maybe mm-hmm. I would call it for our churches is I believe sincerely that God blesses the mission minded church mm. i see this i mean you got an orchard uh t-shirt mm-hmm. on. i happen to know that church my sister goes there as well and i know what kind of budget that church has for missions mm-hmm. so are they growing in the chicagoland area praise god is colin smith's international open the bible ministry growing worldwide praise god and i think it's because they've always had a, a, a mm. sincere interest in foreign mm-hmm. missions And uh, don't think about just building a bigger building or uh, putting on a nicer program for the young people, Mm -hmm. but putting a high percentage of their 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 funds into the frontline pioneer work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can speak Mm -hmm. I can speak for that personally. My first time out of the country was a mission trip with the Orchard, and it was to Kosovo. Mm -hmm. You know, a place that who wants to go to Kosovo? Like most people don't even know what Kosovo is. You know, (laughs) and uh, it just blew my mind. It blew my mind. And so, you know, just to add to what Jim is saying, just from my own personal experience, like get outside the box, you know, get outside the box. If you haven't been out of the country, go out of the country, not just to a vacation spot. But even if it is a vacation spot, like go 
and look at the people, you know, not the other vacationers, but the indigenous people. Look at them, learn about their culture, learn about their history and be prayerful and just say, Lord, like, is there something that you would have me do? Hmm. You know, I know the, the missions coordinator for the orchard. He was like, man, I wish I could just have you here just coming to a coffee shop every day, just talking to people about Jesus. And I was like, well, you know, unfortunately, I'm married, you know, because <laughs> if I wouldn't, I'd be like, yeah, I don't even want to go back home right now. Like, let me stay here. Because that country has so much history and so much turmoil, you know, going on. And it's like, man, it's a big world out there. And to be prayerful and ask God, where do I fit in it? And it's not about me, right? I'm created for purpose and for a reason. And part of that purpose and reason is to make disciples. So, Lord, how can I be making disciples in my own life? You know, so just to be prayerful, asking that question. You know, and, and like Jim said, like I tell people that's locked up, they said, man, I'm going to change when I get out. I said, man, if you won't change here, yeah. you ain't going to change when you get out. Yeah. I want to go be a missionary. What are you doing right where mm-hmm. you are? Have you talked to your neighbors about Jesus, your classmates, mm-hmm. your coworkers? Have you talked to any of them? Because if you haven't, what's realistically the chance that you're going to mm-hmm. go to another country and then do that? When you can't even speak their language. <laughs> that, that too, can't even speak their language. Can't even yeah. speak their language. And that's another good uh, point is learn the languages. There's many languages that use English, but people of different uh, backgrounds speak different languages in this very country. So, yeah. Uh, and learn I culture, think, learn. Yeah. I think that's yeah. important. I actually went to on another mission trip with them to Haiti. And with each trip, we met for weeks. And I missed a lot of those from prior commitments. But, you know, learning popular phrases, you know, I think that when a person that's not an English speaking person, like naturally, when they've taken the time to learn the language, I know that's like a form of respect. Mm -hmm. And it's also like I care. You know, that's why I look at it. So it's like if I'm going to go to another country and I want to respect them and show them that I care instead of me forcing my English on Mm -hmm. them. Why don't I put in the hard work? And, I, and I'm not a good, I'm not a linguist. I mean, I can't pick up nothing, man. Mm-hmm. It is so difficult for me. But if that's what the Lord led me to do, man, I would I would go day and night trying to learn. And I, and I would get it. I would make it my business to get it because I want to respect those people and I want to show them that I care enough mm-hmm. about them, that I want to learn their language and I also want to learn about their culture. And I think that's one thing as Americans, yeah. and I'm sure you can maybe speak to this, Jim, if you've ever seen missions gone wrong, it's people from other countries going to a country and trying to force their ideologies, their beliefs, their way of living on the people where they are in their country. Right. Now that, that happens. Or they just become this, have their own little insular USA uh, in mm-hmm. their house and they, they're scared of this and they don't like this and they criticize that and mm. they don't learn the language well. That's right. So, yeah, you're only as good as uh, on the mission field as your language skill is. Mm. Uh, so, okay. Yeah. Wow, that's great. Mm. I like you're only as good on the mission field as your language skill is. Wow. Yeah, so if, a Russian, if, a, if a Russian came to your church and couldn't speak English to you and, and got up and spoke in, in Russian, how much good would that do you? It'd be like speaking in yeah. tongues with no interpreter. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So that's like... So <laughs> Yeah. Same the other way around. Yep. Well, as we wind down, um, thank you again for everything you shared, man. It's it's been a, it's a blessing for me. A lot of stuff I knew, there's stuff I didn't know. But usually at the end, we usually ask um, our guests as well as each of us: Is there something that you like to leave as a last word 
to our listeners and viewers. You know, maybe maybe it was the last statement you just made or maybe it's something else, but just one last thought or one last statement um, to leave for our listeners. I think the psalmist sums it all up for me in Psalm 37, verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will bring it to pass. Mm-hmm. Man. That says it all for me. Simple and sweet. Yeah. What about you, Sam? I was thinking about the Jim Elliott quote that you referenced that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I remember reading that for the first time and like, you can't wiggle your way out of that logically, uh, spiritually. And like you said, it was a paraphrase of what, what Jesus said. And that has stuck with me. And I think it's a great, um, litmus test for all parts of my life whatever phase it's in just to go back to and to see if I'm uh, violating that in mm. any way, if I'm yeah. living for things that actually will be lost in Philippians one. Uh, I think that's where it's at. Paul uses this word where he, where he's Paul is talking about um, having the things in your life that like the literal translation is the things that carry through. Sometimes it translates them as eternal things, but the word is dia Pharaoh and it literally means the things that carry through. And like, that's what you want to make your life about the things that aren't just temporary that, but the things that will carry through into the next world, the, the most important things in life. And if I'm sidetracked on the lesser things and, you know, I'm, I'm sidetracked, I'm, I'm living wrong. And uh, I want to make sure to live for the things that I, that I cannot lose and want to encourage our listeners and, and missions is a, is a great is a, is a great test of that and a great way to live that out too. But like Jim, like you said, make sure you're doing those things in your, in your family, you know, in the smallest context, in your church and, uh, and start there and then, and then live outward from that. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, no, that's good. That's good. I guess mine would be kind of a a spinoff of what Jim said. You're only as good. um, You're only as effective in the country as you know, the language, something like that. And I was just thinking, right, as believers in Jesus, mm-hmm. we're only effective with making disciples as we know the gospel. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, if, if if we're not really sharing the gospel, if we don't really know and understand the fullness of the gospel, then we're not going to be as effective with sharing it and also to help you make disciples. So we need to have that cemented and rooted in our hearts and our minds, you know, much like being effective on a mission field and knowing the language and only being effective as much as you know the language. It's the same thing with sharing the gospel, man. Like, and even even just the word of God in general, like we need to become students of the word of God, I believe. And we can only be as effective as as much as we are a student of the Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just at a a thing the other day with a group of people and we were talking about Jesus and it was actually um, Jesus in Matthew nine, I believe where Jesus is with Matthew, the tax collector. And it said other tax collectors and other sinners came in the first. He's like, wait a minute, man, he's eating with these, these sinners. And Jesus basically says, man, uh, uh, I came for sick folk, not for healthy people, you know? And it's like, 
we need to be looking for sick people. And I'm a sick people. Mm-hmm. I'm a sick person. I, I, I always need Jesus. I need the gospel in my life richly mm-hmm. every day mm-hmm. so that I can carry out with the mission that God mm-hmm. has for me. And I can only be effective to others as much mm-hmm. as I can know the gospel, know the word of God, and then pass it on. And then so. to be able to hang with those people, too, and speak their language in that in that sense, too, to be able to hang with the with the sick folk. Yeah, well, I can definitely speak talk with the sick <laughs> folk. I don't know if I can ch- kick it with Jesus, man. He kind of a little bit yeah. higher level than me. But, <laughs> but man, Jim, it's been a joy, man, and a pleasure. I look forward to seeing you at the conference. I guess it's going to be maybe next year, I'm guessing. Probably not this year, but. That's right. Not this year, but uh, you can drop by Dubuque. It's only three hours away. So. Yeah, I was there recently, yeah. and I missed you. You, were, yeah. I just was in and out real quick, but. Yeah, I was probably in Columbia. Yep. Uh, yeah, and if you want, want to carry your bag, my bags, I'll, I'll find that trip where I have two 100-pound bags. <laughs> Man, look, find it. You know what? I'm real good at finding other people that can carry heavy stuff or I know how to get a um what's that called a a, 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 a dolly a dolly yeah. yeah so man it's a blessing brother thank you so much for being with thank us you. man you have a yeah. great rest of the day and for all of you listeners today man if um hope you were blessed by this man if you were pass it on share it we're on Apple Podcasts we're on Spotify you can check us out on YouTube if you have any questions or comments for us or for Jim you can reach us at bumperstickerfaith at gmail.com I know that's really long but but it works bumperstickerfaith at gmail.com <laughs> Send us an email, um, questions, comments, whatever. And, man, we just hope that that you were blessed by this, and we hope that it's something that can help you grow closer and closer to Jesus. So take care. God bless, and don't go stepping in those. Peace. Peace.